The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, a little over a year ago, one of our pastoral residents, um, a a guy named Mikey who's participating in our greenhouse, preached a sermon, a great sermon on Acts chapter 4, and he talked about occasionally you are confronted with news that you got to do something about, right? Occasionally you are confronted with news that you got to do something about. But the curse of living in the modern age, 2023, for all of its wonderful, you know, air conditioning and antibiotics and all sorts of other things that I'm really grateful for, the curse of living in our day and age is that you are inundated with all kinds of news that you can do nothing about, right? One thing that I think about for me personally was a few years ago, there was this thing that was being shared online. It was, uh, it was about the risks or the dangers of dry drowning. Now, I went... 30-something years without ever once hearing about or thinking about or knowing the risk of dry drowning. But apparently, you can go swimming and then hours later drown from the water that somehow got into your body, right? So, again, I knew nothing about that for the vast majority of my life. But what do you think I have low-grade anxiety about hours after my kids go swimming? Is one of them going to dry drown? Is this going to happen? Right? there's, There's all sorts of news that just has a way of kind of landing on us and doing nothing but stressing us out. We just put it in the crock pot of our brain and create anxiety soup right, with all of the other ingredients. But there's some news that demands action, that requires a response. And the illustration that Mikey used was as a, as a dude who grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, when you heard hurricanes were coming to the coast of South Carolina, well, you had to do something about that. I grew up in the upstate, and when we heard about hurricanes, you know, we typically think, I hope my favorite seafood restaurant makes it out okay, but, you know, short of that, you know, I I don't really think much about hurricanes. You know, I wonder how much rain we're going to get, that sort of thing. But if you live on the coast, hurricanes are something you got to address. And and, and what happens when they announce the arrival of a hurricane? Well, people, they board up their homes, they clear out the grocery stores, they they cancel school. I mean, the, the, the reality of the hurricane becomes the central fact. The central fact. It becomes reality with a capital R. And it has a way of just sort of distilling all of the things that are ancillary and unimportant and tertiary and whatever else. And makes you focus on the things that are most essential. It becomes the truth that relativizes everything. Right? Now the Christian faith teaches, amazingly, the Christian faith teaches that God comes to us in mercy and in kindness, motivated by compassion, motivated by love for us and for his own namesake. He comes to us and shows us what he's like in the person of Jesus. And the way that we respond is by conspiring to put Jesus to death. But listen to this. The Christian story also tells us that Jesus came back from the dead. That Jesus is literally alive. He is alive in in a way that you could even say is more alive than you and I are right now as we speak. And Jesus is literally reigning present tense. I've heard it said that there's 160 pounds of human DNA that is orchestrating the movements of the galaxies as we speak. The living, literal Jesus of the Bible is moving the universe around like chess pieces, building his church and working for the good of his people. And the Christian faith also tells us that one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to complete what he started, remaking the world and ruling over all nations. 
And every tongue will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The bulletproof, deathproof Lord of the universe. And so now Jesus, if this is true, if the Christian faith is right in what it asserts and claims about Jesus, now he is the central fact, the central thing, the fact of all facts, the single most important thing in all of human history. We could say that Jesus' resurrection relativizes everything. There is no thing, no person, no domain that that information does not affect. Now, the book of Acts is about the church exploding outward with that timeline-splitting news that Jesus died and is not dead anymore. Right after Jesus' Ministry and death and resurrection, the book of Acts opens with the resurrected Jesus telling his disciples, I'm sending you guys out to testify about me. I'm sending you to the nations to say, look, Jesus died, he was crucified, but he isn't dead anymore. And he's the king that triumphed over sin and death and present tense rules the world. The first 20 chapters of this book, I mean, that is exactly what takes place as Jesus' disciples go about preaching that incredible news. And Jesus is, is leading and redirecting and interacting and kind of appearing along the way. Part of that leading and redirecting and interacting is the calling of a guy called Paul. A guy who is a persecutor of the church who's inverted by the grace of Jesus when he confronts him on the road to Damascus. And he turns him from this ferocious persecutor of the church. He, he inverts him and turns him into this just incredible church planter and missionary. We're told in chapters 13 through 20 about the three missionary journeys that Paul goes on all over the known world during that time. And during that time, as Paul's preaching the gospel and sharing about the resurrected King Jesus, a shadow movement of people forms in response to Paul. That's committed to opposing his message. They follow him around from city to city, spreading lies and rumors, attempting to invalidate and hopefully sabotage Paul's labors, Paul's message. They understand how explosive and powerful the gospel is, and they want to undo it. But of course, the resurrected Lord Jesus is in charge of this, right? So there's no amount of opposition or conspiracies that can undo what Jesus intends to do through his people. And again and again, we've seen these gospel judo moves where Jesus kind of inverts the, the, the work of the enemy and, and sh- sort of shows it to have always been a part of God's plan along the way. Most recently, Jesus tells Paul, It's time for you to go back where all of this started, back to Jerusalem. And Paul, in obedience to Jesus, he prepares for the worst, thinking he's headed to his death in Jerusalem. He's arrested. And then this is where the book takes kind of an interesting turn. Uh, One of the things that's so great about teaching through Acts is there's a lot of really kind of exciting, juicy stories. Have you ever seen Indiana Jones? Anybody like Indiana Jones? There's three Indiana Jones movies. There's three, (laughs) in my opinion. I grew up watching them on like reruns on TNT and, you know, being thoroughly disturbed by, you know, the, you know, the, one, the second one, the scene, and the second one, you know. Now, <laughs> Indiana Jones, the book of Acts, rather, it kind of has this like globe-trotting, daring-do Indiana Jones kind of flavor throughout the first 20 chapters or so. Just lots of adventures and these amazing things happen. And then all of a sudden, when we get to chapter 21, it goes from Indiana Jones to like a season of law and order, Okay. Paul spends the rest of this book being passed from court to court, governor to governor, making his defense, like legally making the case for why he can do the things that he's doing. And we are in one such passage today. But if you've been paying attention, you know that this is no accident either. Like even this, maybe especially this, was always part of the Lord Jesus' plan. 
Several years prior to this, way before these events, and even before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus tells his disciples this. This comes from Matthew chapter 10. He tells his disciples, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And watch this. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus promises tribulation and trials and difficulties for his disciples. And he even specifically says, some of my followers are going to appear before governors and kings for my sake. And guess who Paul appears before in the next four chapters? Governors and kings for Jesus' namesake, right? Jesus tells Paul in chapter 23, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Jesus tells Paul, I'm sending you to the heart of the Roman world, the, the, the heart of the world for all intents and purposes, to talk about the resurrected Jesus, who is the king of all nations. And so Jesus, in chapter 3, preserves Paul's life again with one of these gospel judo moves, and he positions him here today to put Paul before a Roman governor to tell him about the resurrected one true Lord of the world. That's what we'll see this morning, and then we'll consider just a few things as to what this means for us. Let's look at verse 1 once again. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. Now, Paul was in Roman custody in the city of Caesarea, about 75 miles northwest of Jerusalem, which would have been the administrative capital of this region. Paul's being held in custody by the governor named Felix, and Felix intends to try Paul. But he's, he's awaiting the arrival of Paul's accusers. It tells us that five days later, they arrive. Ananias... Remember, not a good dude. From last week, he arrives and he's got company with him this time, a guy named Tertullus. The Jewish council has effectively lawyered up. He's a sort of prosecuting attorney brought along to make the case and bury Paul once for all. That's the idea. Let's bring in Tertullus. Let's bring him to to make the case on our behalf and let's bury Paul. Let's finish this. Verse 2. When he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, Buttering up, Felix, this is great. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and in everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. But to, to, to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Just kind of icky, right? Then watch this. Watch how he condemns Paul, verse 5. For we have found this man a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all of these things were so. These guys are essentially accusing Paul of what they accused him of several chapters ago, but exaggerated and probably played up in a way to appeal to Felix. Felix, this guy, he's causing riots. I mean, he's, he's such a disease. He's a plague. 
He's stirring stuff up, and he's a ringleader of a bunch of brigands who would overthrow you all. He's profaning our temple, but thankfully, we stopped him, and and we brought order before things got really bad. But what they're trying to do is paint Paul as some kind of revolutionary, a disturber of the peace, which Roman authorities did not take too kindly. If Paul's an insurrectionist, or we can paint Paul in that light, Rome will surely grind him into dust. You can read historical accounts from just prior to this time, just prior to the, the story of Jesus. Historical accounts of Rome responding to insurrections and revolutions with the most kind of intensity that you could imagine. I mean, there's stories of people, just hundreds of people who were crucified and, and kind of left on the road to the city as a warning to anybody who would try and overthrow Rome. This is how we treat revolutionaries. So they're trying to play that up. Paul's a revolutionary. What Paul's doing is trying to, he's introducing this new thing that's going to cause a bunch of waves in the Roman Empire. You've got to put this guy down. Verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, that is Paul, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Paul says, I cheerfully make my defense. They can't prove any of this. What's more, it's only been 12 days since I arrived in the city. Number one, that's not a lot of time to build some kind of empire-overturning revolution, right? It's only 12 days ago. Second, go back to the city and ask people. Hey, 12 days ago was the Apostle Paul stirring up a bunch of riots in the city. Paul's saying, the evidence just just doesn't point to actually condemning me in the way that these guys are attempting to condemn me. But here's what I do confess, verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. Paul, in his defense, says that I belong to the way. This is a a way that Luke has, has used and early Christians used to describe the Christian movement in those early days. Probably taken from Jesus' words in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. These are the people that follow the way of Jesus. And he says, this is not just a sect of Judaism. This is not some new thing, some kind of fringe movement that we're highlighting here. This is actually the completion of Judaism. The fulfillment of the Jewish story. The completion of the Jewish hopes. We hope in God. They hope in God. And we believe that that hope has been completed in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is a really kind of brilliant move for two reasons. One, Paul is defending himself saying that this is not some new thing. It's not a wonky new religion or teaching that's cause for alarm. Rather, it is in legitimate continuity with the Jewish faith. All right, so again, we're, we're not trying to, to, to start riots or, or, or introduce something new. This is in continuity with what these folks believe. But it's brilliant also because what is Paul doing right here? He's evangelizing. Paul is preaching the gospel to Felix, to these Jewish leaders, and to any soul who is in hearing distance. Paul is bearing witness to Jesus. It's really helpful to point out here 
You know, sometimes when we, we think about Jesus' teaching on, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus tells us things like, we're to turn the other cheek or go the extra mile, it means that there's no place for defense of our faith. That there, there's no place for a Christian to defend themselves. But actually what Paul shows is that it's completely appropriate for us to defend ourselves. And especially to avail ourselves of legal means to defend ourselves should we find ourselves in legal trouble. So in certain parts of the world, it's against the law to proselytize, it's against the law to evangelize, it's against the law to follow the way, and it's totally appropriate for those brothers and sisters to use the legal system to defend their practices, to defend their faith in Jesus, to demonstrate how they, how they aren't necessarily breaking the law. At least in part, what Jesus intends for us to do in these situations is, is platform the gospel. I mean, that, that's exactly what's taking place here. This was his purpose in Paul doing what he's doing. Jesus says, I'm positioning you to testify about me. Verse 15, Paul says that the knowledge of Jesus' return, where Jesus will resurrect the just and the unjust, verse 16, Paul says, it compels me to live well, to have a clean conscience. So he says, so believe me, I am not lying to you, because I believe that Jesus The resurrected king of all things is returning to make all things right. He will judge the just and the unjust. My conscience is compelled only to speak the truth about what I've done. And listen to me. I have done no wrong. I have not done the things that these guys are accusing me of having done. I came simply to Jerusalem to bring offerings to Christians there. My conscience is clean on this issue, Paul says. I think there's a little bit of a subtle statement of allegiance here, where Paul is confessing to these folks that my conscience and my living is bound only by Jesus. In other words, not you. I obey Jesus. I don't obey you. It reminds me again of Jesus' teaching in the same chapter that I read from earlier, Matthew 10. Jesus tells his disciples, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Paul's saying, I am constrained and bound by the central fact. The resurrection and lordship of Jesus and his coming judgment alone. That's the thing that compels me. Verse 18. Paul continues his defense. He says, While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, that shadow movement who's following him around, some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul says, these guys don't even have the information they need to condemn me. And what's more, I am on trial here not for anything that I've done, but simply because Jesus has resurrected from the dead. Verse 22. This gets into my favorite part of this passage. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, Put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide the case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that, uh, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Luke tells us that Felix has a rather accurate knowledge of the way, which probably means that Felix knows that Paul isn't causing issues. Felix has some knowledge of the Christian faith, apparently, and he knows that Christians aren't revolutionaries. And he knows that Paul isn't the plague he's accused of being. And so he actually grants Paul some leeway and ultimately punts the decision until the tribune makes his way to Caesarea. Then watch this, verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, 
And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Felix is intrigued and compelled by what Paul has talked about, by what Paul has testified about in court. We're told that Felix has a, a, a Jewish wife, a woman named Drusilla. It's probably because she's like got some vested interest in this information. I mean, this guy is making a compelling case about what the God of Israel is doing now in the person of Jesus. Let's go hear more about this, Felix. And it says in verse 25 that they, they go and talk with Paul, and Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Paul's probably appealing to what, have, what would have been a Roman leader's interests, these virtues. Things like righteousness and self-control were, were very much sort of a part of the, the Greco-Roman world. Kind of a, a devotion to virtue, a devotion to self-mastery and these sorts of things. And what Paul is probably doing here is demonstrating how those things are found and available only in Jesus. Who grants us his spirit to live virtuous lives. But also, Paul talks about with urgency the reality that Jesus is coming to judge the nations. And he's probably emphasizing with Felix, like, Jesus is coming to, to judge even the rulers, and maybe even especially the rulers. Verse 25, Felix responds with alarm. Felix was alarmed. He told Paul, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent, him, uh, sent for him often, conversed with him. Presumably this was an ongoing thing. Verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Felix is interested. He keeps Paul in prison so he can continue to talk with Paul. But ultimately, he's alarmed and he punts. He sends Paul away. And it's because Felix understood exactly the point that we made at the beginning of our time this morning. That Jesus' resurrection relativizes everything. It's wild to think about this room. We have a variety of different experiences. Some of us, I was listening this morning to folks talking about the different languages that they can speak in here, and I'm, I'm like, I, I barely have English, and you guys are talking about speaking Chinese and Spanish and stuff. It's like, that's incredible. It's amazing to think about the diversity of our experiences and our different walks of life and all of the things that the Lord has done, the things that we've seen. It's amazing to think about all of the ways that we're different. But you know, there's one way in which we are all, every one of us, in the exact same seat on the bus. It's that Jesus' resurrection demands something from us. Jesus' resurrection requires something from us. And Jesus' resurrection has something to say to us in our jobs, in our parenting, in our dating, in our schooling, in every moment of every day. If it is true that Jesus is not dead, non-Christian, Christian, speaking Chinese, speaking Spanish alike, whatever it is, Jesus' resurrection relativizes everything. And I'll speak to those here this morning who aren't Christians first. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I am, I'm frankly just really curious as to what you make of all of this talk. And I recognize there's lots of things you probably have questions about as it relates to the Christian faith. You probably have questions about origins. Uh, where did we all come from? Uh, you probably have questions about science. How does science and faith sort of jive and work together? Maybe you have questions about the rationality of the existence of God. And I would say that all of those things are really important questions to wrestle with. But at the blazing center of the church's claim is this. Jesus came back to life. 
And you hear that, and you're like, a resurrection, people don't just rise from the dead. And listen, we agree. People don't just rise from the dead. That's what makes this so astounding. This one did, and that's why it's so remarkable, and that's why Jesus changed the world, because he came back from the dead. How did he do it? I don't know, but he did. Jesus exists now, and what kind of existence does that? I don't know, but he does, and he exists. Jesus came back to life, and if Jesus is alive, I mean, that means your life is not your own. I mean, that is exactly what Felix understood that the resurrected Jesus is coming back to judge the world. And I am accountable to Jesus, and you are accountable to Jesus. He has a claim on you. He does and can demand your love and your allegiance. And again, regardless of who you are or where you come from, every soul is confronted with this question. How will I respond to the resurrection of Christ? Will you respond like Felix? who understood that this is significant and dealt with it by punting it to a future date? But I just ask, I mean, like a hurricane on the coast, is this something that you just dismiss? Would you be like Felix who punts, or would you see what's being said here, and would you respond with belief? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus comes to us, he dies for our sin, and he's raised to new life to address our sin, Satan, and death problem. The Christian faith teaches that every soul, rich, poor, royalty, peasant, wherever you fall on that spectrum, every soul is born in need of forgiveness. We're born sinners. I think, I think that all of us intuitively know that. I think that's the reason we can't fall asleep at night is because we think about all of the things that we've done wrong and we think of all of the reasons that we have fallen short. But part of this astounding good news is that Jesus forgives our sin. That he, he, he looks on you and your sin, the evil stuff that you have done, that you know is evil and twisted and malicious and awful. Jesus looks at it and by his death forgives it, forgives our sin, is punished for us, and then is raised to new life so that we could have new life forever with him. A, a new life that we never, could never earn or deserve. And the way that we access this forgiveness is simply through belief. It's by, it's kind of, Extending our hands upward and saying, I tap out, Jesus. I, I, I am yours. I believe that you have done these things for me. And, and the call for every non-Christian in this room, and gosh, all over planet Earth is simply to believe on the Lord Jesus. Because the resurrection relativizes everything. And Christian, I'll speak to you for a second. I think there's three things from this passage that we sort of see about Jesus' resurrection and how it motivates us in our lives. First, Jesus' resurrection motivates us to live well. Again, verse 16. Paul says that the, the knowledge of the resurrection and the knowledge that Christ is coming back motivates Paul to live well, to have a clean conscience, knowing that when Jesus returns, he's bringing judgment on all evil. Now, this introduces a, a little bit of attention for us, right? Because we talked just a moment ago about how Jesus forgives us of our sin. That that's a, a past sort of pronouncement over us, that we have been forgiven. Yet, and, and Paul is one of the, the strongest adherents of that truth. He writes in letters like Romans and Galatians that we are forgiven point blank. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus point blank. But Paul also seems to have a, a little bit of a, maybe a healthy fear about the future, about this judgment that is to come. You know, so are, are we not condemned point blank or are we trying to perform and, and cross the obedience threshold so that we can eventually get in? How do these two things work together? 
simply say that there's tension there that Paul wants us to sit within and that the New Testament calls us to sit in. The New Testament teaches us that for those who understand and grasp the forgiveness that we've been given, as a result, we, we respond to that, that incredible grace with a life of obedience and gratitude. But there's a warning. Even if we sort of claim to have believed or even if we were baptized, even if we have professed faith, if we eventually fall away from that belief, we demonstrate ourselves to have never believed from the get-go. And so there is a call to faithfulness, just like in Matthew chapter 10, a call to endurance until the very end. And the way that we conclusively sort of demonstrate that we belong to Christ is, well, we endure. D.A. Carson says that Christians, by definition, endure. And I think that's the tension that's sort of at play in this passage. It's good for us to look, hopefully, at Jesus' resurrection. We'll get there in just a second. We should. We should be like children waiting for Christmas morning when it comes to Jesus' the final resurrection when Jesus makes all things right. But we should also carry within us a sense of urgency about what this means for us and our obedience and our faithfulness to Christ. Do you understand? Jesus' resurrection motivates us to live well. Secondly, Jesus' resurrection enables us to suffer. Even suffer injustice. This whole encounter made me think of Peter, another apostle. Peter's words written maybe five or so years after the events of Acts 24. This comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's his second coming. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Much of what can be learned from Paul's example and Peter's teaching here, again, as we said a moment ago, is that we should avail ourselves of legal means to make a defense against unjust accusations. The Lord appoints rulers to adjudicate justly. We're to do this honorably, not disorderly or backhandedly. But this doesn't mean that we're to suffer silently or to refuse to defend ourselves lawfully. But what he is saying is that ultimately we are to entrust our vindication to God. That there's coming a day when even though we suffer unjustly, God will address injustice. It's undeniable that there is corruption in the world. And this government and that government and all nations on planet earth across all times and all places, we are corrupt. There is corruption. There is injustice. And we may find ourselves on the blunt end of that. But maybe it's not even unjust treatment from governing authorities like Paul. Maybe it's unjust treatment at work. Maybe it's unjustly being looked over a a, a promotion that you earned. Maybe you're opposed for your faith. Maybe it's unjust treatment from friend or family, or maybe it's unjust treatment from a church, from other believers. The crooked reality of our fallen world is that injustice reigns. But if we're to imitate the Lord Jesus and Paul and Peter and the other apostles... Then, after making a defense, even appealing to limited justice this side of eternity, we don't curse. We don't bribe. We wait. 
We wait for the Lord Jesus to exonerate us either now or then because the Lord Jesus will set everything to rights. Again, in verse 26, Felix has this, uh, one of our elders called it low-grade corruption that actually leads and uh, results in him delaying Paul's freedom. He knows that the charges are bogus, but he does nothing. And listen, like the Lord Jesus, Paul never responds with violence in word or deed or with bribes or anything like that. He responds with patience and hope. The third thing that Jesus' resurrection does for us is it engenders hope. The light of the resurrection promises that the unjust won't rule forever. And that evil, though it's thick and strong and casts a dark cloud over everything right now, that won't always be the case. And the prophets give us these, these kind of crazy promises that in those days, the former things will be remembered no more. And it's like, Man, what kind of good awaits us if it's so potent that it displaces the former things? Jesus' resurrection engenders hope for us. That one day, everything will be right, and one day we will be with the Lord forever. But like a hurricane, this presses us to a decision. Every person here, in this moment, it is you and Jesus, like a hurricane bearing down on a beach house. Something must be done, because it's not just unjust rulers who will be held accountable, but all people will be held accountable by Jesus, every person, every soul, every place. But hear me, he is a merciful king who offers pardon, who bleeds for his people, and he offers forgiveness if only we would believe. That's the call this morning for every soul in this room. Would we believe in the forgiveness that Christ offers us? Now, in the next few moments, we have the opportunity to see in in a very vivid and sort of visceral way the grace of the Lord Jesus, as we take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a practice that Jesus gave to his church to train us about the truth of the gospel. He encourages us to look in three different directions. We look backwards to when Christ, was, his body was, was broken for his people. We look outwards at the brothers and sisters with whom we share this meal. We belong together because we belong to Christ. And then we look forward to that day when Jesus writes all wrongs and makes all sad things untrue. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, what we would say is that this meal is not for you, but we want it to be for you. We want that to be so. We would love to talk more about what it means to place your faith in Christ and follow him. I'll be available in the lobby after worship, and I know for a fact that whoever brought you this morning would love to talk more about what it means to be a Christian. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then I'll read a liturgy that prepares us to take the supper. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for loving us and for giving yourself for us. And we pray that we would never grow cold to the gospel and that we would always be uh, compelled by the knowledge of what awaits us. We pray this morning that as we take the supper, that you would uh, just again um, engender within us that hope as we, as we understand that these are the hors d'oeuvres of the meal that is to come. And we again pray for our friends who are here who have not yet believed. We pray that something about what's been said this morning, that the the gospel would take root in their lives. We pray that this meal would sustain us and nourish us as pilgrims on this pilgrim way.
And we pray for your help this morning.